Acts chapter 24, the entire chapter, but let's zoom in this morning at the beginning in verse 16. Acts 24, 16. The Bible says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Jesus, only Jesus, help us trust you more and more. Father, we just sang this song. We pray that our hearts would be sincere. And so by the power of the Spirit, open up this ancient, inspired, infallible text and produce more faith in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Roger Clemens, Alex Rodriguez. If you know those names, then perhaps you think MLB stars. Men who have crushed records, award winners, championship players. If you look at Major League Baseball statistics, their names are at the top of many categories. And yet, one thing they share in common is though they are retired, none of them are in the Hall of Fame. And why are they not in the Hall of Fame? Because the route that they chose to have their success involved cheating, performance-enhancing drugs, steroids. Many baseball players in the late 90s were accused of such things. Many high-profile players denied such things. But others came clean. For example, in a deposition... One of the Yankees, Melky Cabrera, said, I realized it wasn't necessary. My heart and my conscience was killing me. Ever been in a position where you could say, along with him, my conscience was killing me? On Mark McGuire, one sports writer said, and this is when Mark McGuire finally admitted that he did take steroids, the writer says, his statement says a lot about the man behind the slugger. He said, quote, knew this day would come, And he wished I had never played during the steroid era. And the sports writer goes on to say, those are the words of a man with a guilty conscience. He goes on to say, America loves a redemption story. Maybe this admission and subsequent position as St. Louis's new hitting coach is McGuire's attempt at clearing his name along with clearing his conscience. Now, I never thought this day would come. But I'm going to use a Yankee as an example of virtue. Those who know, I'm a Red Sox fan, so this pains me to say it. But Andy Pettit, who is a Christian, was also one of these men involved in the steroid scandal back in the late 90s, early 2000s. He told the truth about my boyhood hero, Roger Clemens, and mentioned that, yes, he introduced me to performance-enhancing drugs. One sports writer says about Andy Pettit that he felt caught between his friends Roger Clemens and Brian McNamee, and his conscience told him which side to choose. Now, in the words of Andy Pettit, listen to what he says about why he chose to tell the truth, even though it was a risk for his friend, Roger Clemens, and a risk for himself. He said this, I have to tell you all the truth. I have to live with myself. 
And one day, I have to give an account to God and not to anyone else of what I've done in my life. Andy Pettit followed his conscience, a conscience that was sensitive to the leading of God Almighty. Our study in the book of Acts takes us to multiple accounts of the Apostle Paul having to stand before others and give an answer for the accusations railed against him. You have already seen this happen a few times, and you will see this in the next few sermons. Paul continually has to defend himself. He is not defensive as a person, but when necessary, he must speak the truth about his life. Paul was neither an enemy of Rome nor an enemy of Jerusalem, but he finds himself yet again on trial as though he were. John Stott points out that Paul both affirms the God-given authority of Rome and the spiritual heritage of the Jews in the book of Romans. And he says, if a solitary dissident like Paul were to set himself against the combined might of Jerusalem and Rome, the outcome would be inevitable. He says, Paul's chances of survival would resemble those of a butterfly before a steamroller. And this is Paul, the butterfly, facing the steamroller of the authorities of Rome and the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem, pointing fingers at him, asking him once again to give an answer. And yet with all of that facing him, As we zoomed into verse 16, Paul says with great confidence that I have made great pains to keep a clear conscience before God and before man. Like Andy Pettit, the baseball player, Paul was aware that there is a judge that is greater than the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. There is a judge who is greater than Felix, the governor of Rome. He will stand before God Almighty one day, and what he says on that day matters so much more than what these people will accuse him of. To live this life knowing that you have been deceptive and cheated and you've hid your sins is to live in bondage and deception. But to live life knowing that though you are far from perfect, you have been sincere and honest before God, confessing your sins to Him and have a clear conscience leads to freedom and boldness, a freedom that can stand before governors and kings. So I pray that as we consider Paul's defense in Acts 24, we would be inspired to consider our own consciences so that we too can live in freedom before God and man. So let's take a look. Acts 24. You see an outline on the screen. We'll take it in three sections. We'll look at the case of the prosecution, followed by Paul's defense, and then the governor's delay. Just to remind you of uh, how we got to this place back at Acts 23, uh, Paul was given a free ride out of Jerusalem. He was given a ride with with the cavalry of horses and soldiers to Caesarea, and he was being kept in the Herodian palace. Claudius, the Roman tribune, sends him to Felix, the governor. So just like in America where we have lower courts and higher courts, Paul had just finished a lower court in Jerusalem, and now he's being sent to a higher court in the Roman province of uh, Caesarea, where he will eventually head towards Rome itself. 
So Paul is no longer in Jerusalem, and the next few chapters we'll see more and more of his defense. And I would just caution you to, to hang tight, because when you look at chapter 24, 25, 26, you're going to see almost the same thing over and over again. But each one of these instances has something specific to teach us. And today, I believe the specific thing is about the conscience. So let's take a look at the prosecution's flimsy case, verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to go kind of verse by verse um, here and there. Verse 1, chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, before I move on to verse uh, 3, understand this is a different context than our, our previous context. You may remember that as Paul spoke of his conscience before Ananias in Jerusalem, Ananias ordered one of the people to strike Paul, and then Paul responded with, you whitewashed wall. Well, again, they're going from lower court to higher court. Now they're before Felix the governor, and it's a little bit of a different context. Everyone has to be on their best behavior here. You're not going to find people uh, insulting one another like they did or striking one another. There's a bit of a more of a reverence in the room at this point. So Ananias, the same one from Jerusalem, is now up here five days later after Paul enjoyed his uh, free hotel in the palace. And he brings the elders, that's the Sanhedrin, and they have this hired gun, this lawyer, Tertullus. We don't know much about him, but... He was a man who was most likely very gifted in rhetoric and, and, and uh, prosecution. So they're bringing before Felix a formal complaint against Paul. Now let's continue. The end of verse 2, Tertullus says, since, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Does that sound a little bit like flattery? Oh, most excellent Felix, we've enjoyed so much of what you've done. I think he's trying to get on the teacher's good side here. Uh, Josephus does tell us historically that Felix was known for putting down a lot of rebellions. So what Tertullus is sort of doing is, you know how, how previously you've stopped and squashed all these rebels and these rioters? Well, well, we're so thankful you've done that, oh, most excellent Felix, and pretty soon I'm going to introduce you to another man that you need to squash. I mean, verse 3, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Brothers and sisters, a, a very neglected topic I think that we need to consider is the sin of flattery. Flattery is a sin. That doesn't mean that giving honor to whom honor is due is wrong. Of course we do. We respectfully honor, respectfully uh, praise that which is praiseworthy, but there is a sense where we can cross a line into flattery and telling people all that they want to hear and the Bible warns us about this all throughout Proverbs and most likely those who flatter you to your face are saying the opposite behind your back. Tertullus was trying to get Felix to be on the side of the prosecution by his over-exaggerated flattery. He's appealing to pragmatism. He's basically saying, because you, oh, excellent Felix, have helped us maintain order. 
We must rid ourselves from anyone who would oppose our common goal. And Paul here, well, let me tell you about him. So let's look at the charges now, verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5. But to detain you no further, again, kind of flattery, right? Like, so I don't waste your time. Let me just get to the point. I beg you and your kindness to hear us briefly. Verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, I've got to give credit to the prosecution here. They are consistent. If you've been with us for the past few weeks or months and you've seen this, the accusations are the same. There's basically four accusations, right? Number one, Paul is a pest. He's a plague. Depends on the translation here. Paul's annoying. Would be pretty interesting if every sibling who found their sibling annoying could just go to court, right? That's the first thing. I've got to tell you, he's annoying. He's a pest. He's a plague. He's a disruptor. Number two, Paul is a political agitator. The Romans certainly want none of that. Number three, Paul is a leader of a sect. A sect would be a a non-recognized religion or group, many of which have opposed Rome. So you kind of see the courtroom here. Tertullus is telling Felix, like, watch out. This guy is leading a sect. And if you don't stop it, the sect's going to grow and they're going to try to overthrow Rome. He's a cult leader. And number four, Paul disrupted and defiled the temple. And you may remember that from previous messages where they accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the place in the temple where Gentiles were not meant to go. So the charges are the same, but now we're in a higher court. And Tertullus pretty much ends his speech in verses 8 and 9 by declaring, Checkmate, my case is strong. Verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. There's, there's quite confidence in this lawyer. The Jews also joined the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Verse 9 could literally be read, and the Jews said, Amen. As a side note, brothers and sisters, this is why we say, Amen. Amen simply means, so let it be. The world is saying that to one another. They come out with all sorts of vile ideologies, and then the chorus of the world says, Amen, so let it be. We're we're accusing Paul falsely. And the Jews are like, amen. Yes, he is all those things. So we come together as God's people and we sing truth and preach truth and read truth. We say, so let it be. Our chorus may seem smaller than the chorus of the world, but when we gather together, we join in the angel chorus. And one day there will be a, a, a innumerable choir Singing praise and truth to the Lord, where nothing but truth will prevail. And we will say, Amen, Amen, Amen. In the meantime, down here on earth, there's a competition going on between truth and error. And I would say that with all of the gusto and enthusiasm that the error has, the truth ought to drown it out. But sometimes, let's face it, we struggle with apathy. And we're not as excited about truth as the world is excited about error. May the Lord wake us up 
to be excited about truth. So Tertullus ends his very brief speech to, to uh, Felix. He's, he's, um, he's flattered him. He's given the charges, and he's very confident saying, listen, everything I'm telling you is true. Just ask him, and everybody there says amen. But it's a flimsy case, because if the case was so strong, he would not have to add all the flattery and the confidence. His confidence is not sincere. He has no evidence. Did you notice the lack of evidence here? Well, let Paul answer now. Verses 10 to 21, the apostle will give a sincere defense. Verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, just notice that Paul is also commending Felix. But he's not flattering him. And he's not appealing to him in a pragmatic way. Matter of fact, all he is, all he is noting is that you've been a judge for many years. You understand justice. Paul is appealing to justice. He's appealing to him, in a sense, to his conscience, that you will do what is right. He's not asking to make a deal. He's asking him to do the right thing. And so Paul goes on to answer the charges. Verses 11 to 13, his answer is, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disrupting with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So Paul's response is, they've got no case here. I've only went to the temple to worship, not to disrupt. And until the Jews descended upon Paul, and we all know because we've read this a few chapters ago, until they came upon Paul in the temple and started shouting and dragging him out, there was no disturbance at all. And so Paul goes on, verse 14 to 16, to say this. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Daryl Bach calls this Paul's confession, but it's not Paul's confession of guilt. It's Paul's confession of faith. He's answering every one of these four charges. He says to their point about being a plague, I did not cause a disturbance. To their point about him being a uh, leader of a sect, he says, no, what I believe is in accordance with what the Jews have been preaching. They believe in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And regarding their idea of him being an agitator and profaning the temple, Paul simply points out, they have no evidence. It's just a bunch of assertions. No proof. And why is Paul able to look Felix in the eye in front of his accusers and say this with such confidence? Because his conscience is clear. 
He doesn't speak as one who has a shaky conscience, a weak conscience, a guilty conscience, but he has a clear conscience. And if our conscience is clear before God, then we can be bold before man. Now look with me at 17 to 21 as he continues his defense. Now after several years, I came to bring alms, that means to give a gift, to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. See, Paul is is saying that there's this gross misunderstanding. I came to Jerusalem to help Jerusalem. Remember, Paul was raising funds from all of the churches in Asia to give to Jerusalem. He came to give alms to his own people. This reminds me of years ago when I went on a missions trip to Peru. We were in the airport in Lima. And um, we had these, these huge cases of, of medical supplies and, and food and haircutting supplies because our missions trip was a medical missions trip where we would do like a VBS for the kids while the parents got medical care and, and got free haircuts and all those things. And, and there was this, this big disruption at the end of the, the line in the airport and it looked like we may not get in or we may not bring our stuff in. And I remember one of the pastors having this back and forth um, with one of the um, security guards or one of the, um, the officials from, from the airport in, in Peru. And of course, it was in Spanish, and so I didn't understand most of what was said. But eventually, after this, this long back and forth, we got in with all of our stuff. And I, I said to the pastor, well, what, what did you tell them? He said, we are bringing these things into your country to help your people. And that was the thing that allowed them to come in with all of these supplies. And likewise with Paul. He came to Jerusalem to help the people of Jerusalem. He brought money for the, the Jerusalem church that was suffering through a famine and a, and a drought. And yet, with all of that sincere desire to help, these Jews from Asia followed them and followed him, falsely accused him of having an ulterior motive. And Paul says there's no evidence of that. And the people who came to the temple, the ones who followed him from Thessalonica and other areas of Asia, they're not even here. Where are they? Where are thine accusers? So Paul is claiming here that he is a faithful Jew looking to help his people do the right thing. And he was the one who was disturbed, not the one making the disturbance. The only thing he says I'm guilty of is for proclaiming orthodox religious beliefs. I'm here because I proclaimed the resurrection. And you may remember that from the last episode where he had to talk uh, and give give an account between the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he, he mentions the resurrection and the Sadducees get all upset because they don't believe in the resurrection. So what is Paul's crime for believing something that half of the Sanhedrin believes? For trying to help the Jews for purifying himself as a faithful Jew in the temple, I think you can see clearly that his accusers have nothing to stand on other than their own annoyance and irritation and maybe the threat that they might lose their power. So Paul offers a very sincere 
answer to the charges. What will Felix do now with this? He's the one who has to make the decision, right? Well, he does something that might not be surprising. He buys himself more time. He delays. He doesn't make a decision. Look with me in verse 22 to 23. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, and that's Lysias Claudius, the the Roman tribune from the first episode in Jerusalem, when he comes down, then I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So, he doesn't want to give an answer, and that might seem pretty practical, because he said, I'll wait for the tribune to come. I'll wait for one more authority figure to come, and then I'll make the decision. But we're going to find out in a little bit that there's a little bit more to it. If there's anyone with an ulterior motive, it's Felix. His delay is actually deceptive. And we'll see what happens here. But before I get to that, I just want to make note that Paul is still being treated well as a Roman citizen. He's under house arrest, but he's still in the Herodian palace. His friends are allowed to visit him. Perhaps one of those friends is uh, Philip, who lived in Caesarea with his four daughters. We don't know. Perhaps Luke visited him. That Maybe that's how he got the account. But Paul is not, not suffering in the sense that he will later suffer, but he is inhibited, and he's not allowed to do the things he used to do. Before I move on to verse 24 to 27, I just want to remind you of the danger of delay. When you hear the truth, and when I hear the truth, God expects us to do something with it. The Bible tells us, behold, today is the day of salvation. Some of us sit under preaching For years, we hear the truth about Christ, about sin, about judgment. Oh, may we never be like Felix, who just says, I'll give it a few days. When our sins are exposed, the expectation is we repent. When salvation is offered, the expectation is we receive it. And I'm sure all of us can think of times, myself included, where we heard the truth And we put it off. That never works out well. May we understand, like Felix, that we can hear the truth. We've got to do something about it. Now, I mentioned that we would find his motive wasn't just to think about the right decision. He had an ulterior motive, and we find that in verses 24 to 26. It says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And here it is. At that same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often. And conversed with him. I can relate, and I'm sure you can too, to Paul 
when there are so many hard hearts out there, you finally get an opportunity to teach someone truth. It is such a blessing. And just imagine Paul. He's, in, he's under house arrest. He just spoke the truth to Felix. And then Felix and his wife come into where he is. And it, it, Luke kind of implies this is happening on an ongoing basis. And they're asking him questions about his faith. And Paul's probably thinking, what an opportunity. I get to sit down with the governor and his wife and tell them about Jesus. Perhaps this is why God has me here. But then we're told that really all along, Felix was not looking for truth. He was looking for money. He was hoping that maybe if Paul made a deal with him, he can let him go and he can get money. How sad that is to have a private audience with the governor and his wife under a false pretense. And you can see, you can see that Felix wasn't open because in verse 24 it tells us that Paul was speaking about faith in Christ. But as soon as Paul in verse 25 was speaking about righteousness, self-control, and judgment, what does it say in verse 25? Felix was alarmed and said, go away. <laughs> I don't want to hear about that. I want my ears tickled. Is that not true today? Where some under a false pretense would come to Christ, but not because they want to hear about sin and judgment, but because they want to hear how they could increase their bank account, perhaps? Jesus Christ is not a genie. Jesus Christ is not for sale. This is one of the things that makes the prosperity gospel so disgusting. That these men, especially on TV with these huge churches, are preying upon the weak. People who might be sincerely looking for truth. And telling them, come to Jesus and your health, your wealth, your career. And that's why when you turn on the TV and listen to most of these preachers, you won't hear anything about what Paul said in verse 25. Righteousness, self-control, coming judgment. Who wants to hear about that? I just want money. So Felix, his heart was hardened to the truth. He was there, the false motive. His hope was for money, a bribe. Maybe if I meet with Paul often enough, we'll become friends. He'll give me some of that money he brought to Jerusalem. I'll let him go. But now think about Paul. Paul had just declared to a watching world that his conscience is clear. It's almost like this test comes in right after he says that. My conscience is clear. Now here's a test, Paul. If your conscience is clear, will you be able to withstand this? Your life hangs in the balance. You're under Roman captivity. Your freedoms are gone. In just a little while, you'll be given an audience with the governor. And he wants money. And you might, might think, maybe Paul wrestled within himself. If I, if I just give in a little bit, let's bribe him, then I can go and can preach the gospel more. So, you know, pragmatism, right? The ends justify the means. But Paul would not violate his conscience. He recognized that the God that he serves is right there with him in the Herodian palace. And Paul would not violate his conscience. He's not going to bribe himself out of this situation. 
And because of Paul's faithfulness, he suffers more. Look at verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now what's Paul thinking? It's been two years. Two years ago, I could have bought myself out of this situation. One little bribe and I could have been free. What would you do? We live in a society that elevates freedom above all things. Free speech, free expression on both sides of the political aisle, by the way. I remember not too long ago, a popular internet pastor encouraging people to lie in order to maintain their freedoms. To lie against God. To disobey the ninth commandment. Because freedom. Yeah, you might have your freedom. You know what else you get? A seared conscience. And we could make the same arguments. Well, Felix is corrupt anyway. The Roman government's corrupt. corrupt. They're holding someone just for preaching the gospel. Look, he's in it for the money. Just give him what he wants and then you can be free. But not for Paul. Because his conscience was clear before God. And he would rather suffer the fate of a prisoner than to forfeit that clear conscience that he worked so hard for. This reminds me of what Jesus told us in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but I'm sure you know these verses where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul understood the words of Christ that his reward is great in heaven. It didn't matter what kind of reward he would have down on earth. His desire was to please God above all. And Paul practiced what he preached, which brings a clear conscience. And he followed his conscience despite the temporal ramifications. And so this chapter kind of ends on a sour note. Paul just kind of is left to his own devices for two years in the palace. A new governor is coming, Festus, and we'll check out Paul's appeals to them in the next few chapters. But I want to point out in this text that there are three types of consciences that I really think speak to us today. You have the Jewish leaders and their defiled conscience. You have Felix and his seared conscience and Paul and his clear conscience. Now there are more types of consciences spoken throughout the Bible. We did a lesson on this. I think you can find it online. It's called Considering the Conscience. And I'm going to just bring a few things out from that lesson as we hopefully get more clear about what this all means for us. So so what is a conscience anyway? There's a lot of misunderstandings about that, right? Some people think maybe it's, uh, you know, you have a, a demon or a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder, and this is your conscience sort of speaking to you, take another cookie. No, don't take another cookie. 
Or maybe it's just, you know, the heart. And it it is the heart, but in a biblical sense. But in the worldly sense, it's not just follow your heart. You know, if your emotions tell you to do something, that's your conscience. Our emotions lie to us all the time. Sometimes we use the conscience as an excuse to sin. We'll say, well, my conscience has no problem with it, so it must be right. Or we use it as an excuse to be legalistic. My conscience won't allow it, therefore... It must be wrong. Or we might use it to bind other people and say, because my conscience feels it's wrong, therefore you shouldn't do that. Or we just make truth subjective. Your conscience, my conscience, whatever is true to you, doesn't matter. The word conscience comes from the Greek word that means with knowing. You can see that in the English word. C-O-N is a prefix for with, science, knowledge, with knowing. That's what it means. And it can be defined as the soul distinguishing between what is morally good and bad. Basically, your conscience is your knowledge of good and evil. The Bible says that every one of us has a conscience. Christian or non-Christian. If you're a believer in Christ in this room or not a believer in Christ in this room, you were given a conscience. The Bible tells us in, in Romans 1 that we perceive that there's a God... It's it's written in our hearts. It's testified to in the creations, in the creation of God. But for many of us, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All human beings know God intuitively, and this knowledge is connected to judgment, and that's why Paul says we are without excuse. The Puritan John Flavel calls the conscience God's spy and man's overseer. Kevin DeYoung says the conscience is the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. Andy Nacelli says the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's like God has endowed each of us with a police officer in our hearts. And that is why, regardless of whether we know the law or don't know the law, it is common in all cultures to know that certain things are moral and immoral. God has given light to everyone. Having a conscience is a mark of being a human being. Uh, The story of Pinocchio, perhaps you know that story, illustrates this very well. In the story of Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket is assigned to Pinocchio as his conscience. The puppet Pinocchio seeks to become a real boy. But as the story goes on, Pinocchio lies. And every time he lies, his nose grows. But not only that, it's not just about the nose growing. If you watch the whole movie or read the whole book, he begins to turn into a donkey. And his donkey-like features become more pronounced as he ignores his conscience. Donkey ears sprout from his head. Donkey tail sprouts from his backside. And this would-be boy turns into an animal. And the moral of the story then is this. If you ignore your conscience, you become a beast. Well, in our text today, we see three different levels, three different types of consciences. The Jewish leaders have a defiled conscience. In Titus 1.15, the Bible talks about a defiled conscience by saying, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their minds and consciences are defiled. What does that mean? 
That police officer that God put in your soul has been broken due to your sin and mine. Our consciences need to be redeemed. But these Jewish leaders have not yet come to the cross so that it would be redeemed. So they're dealing with defiled consciences. One of the manifestations of a defiled conscience is calling good evil and calling evil good. It's like you you have that moral compass, but it's backwards. It's been switched. Look at society today. Advocating for the unborn is seen as evil. Waiting before marriage brings shame to young people. And then flaunting sexually deviant behavior is seen as good and liberating and loving and tolerant. But preaching against sin is seen as hateful and wicked and bigoted and intolerant. They switched it. Because their consciences are defiled. And in our text, Paul was a respecter of the law. He was a worshiper of God. He came to Jerusalem to help the Jewish Christians. And these Jews are saying, that's wicked. That's evil. They've got it backwards. Because their consciences have been defiled. So much so that in a previous episode, these very Jews would call out for Paul's death. And they call that good. But then we come to Felix. Felix has a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about a conscience that is seared. Seared with a hot iron. Felix was a man known for his indulgence. Indulgence in sin. According to the ancient historian Tacitus, Felix's public and private life was not a pretty one. He would indulge, this is from Tacitus, the Roman historian, Felix would indulge in every license and excess, thinking he could do any evil act with impunity. In other words, Felix's conscience was so numb that he can do any immoral act and feel nothing. So the conscience that you and I have that tells us something's wrong, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to kill, Felix has suppressed that so much over his life that he literally feels nothing anymore. He can go to the house where Paul was staying and listen to him preach Christ and all the while just be thinking, I hope he gives me money. I hope he gives me money. He has lost all sense of morality, all sense of goodness. He has spiritual frostbite. So we find defiled consciences, seared consciences, but in this text we also find Paul's clear conscience. Does that mean that Paul was sinless? Absolutely not. If we take Romans 7 to be Paul, Paul Paul, Paul, uh, explains his own wrestling with things in his flesh. In his flesh dwells no good thing. He, He talks about this in Corinthians, about having a thorn in the flesh that he asked God to remove. Paul was weak in many ways. So clear conscience doesn't mean perfect or sinless. But what it does mean is that he is blameless, sincere, truthful, above reproach. Paul knew who his vindicator was. Paul knew that his sins have been forgiven. A clear conscience is the ability for you and me to lay our head on our pillows at night and know that while there might be tension between me and others, there's nothing between me and my God. And Paul knew God. Paul knew that God's favor rested on him. 
Paul knew that the ironic blessing in number six, where it says the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you, applied to him because he was hidden in Christ. Paul talks about this in Philippians, a righteousness which is not my own. Paul believed in God through Christ and he knew that his words were true. He knew that as he spoke before Felix and he spoke before the Sanhedrin, that there was no deception, no flattery. He wasn't spinning the truth. He wasn't manipulating words to sort of present himself as something that he wasn't. Paul was authentic. He was the real deal. And he knew where he stood before God. And that is why he had a clear conscience. And so, brothers and sisters, my conclusion is this, to encourage you today and this morning. Christ redeems our clear and cleans our conscience, giving us freedom to stand before God and man. There's so much more I can say about this, and we could do whole courses on, like, how do we calibrate the conscience, right? If our consciences have been defiled, we've got to get, got to get back to a more sensitive conscience to good and evil. And that's sort of out of the scope of this message. I want to just give you the foundation of that. The foundation of calibrating your conscience before we talk about 10 steps or 12 steps is Jesus Christ. If you don't have Christ, your conscience is still held in captivity. But if you have Christ, no matter how much you may have defiled, ignored, or seared your conscience, Christ and Christ alone can redeem your conscience. And not only does he redeem your conscience, he cleanses your conscience with his blood If you'll turn with me to Hebrews 10 as we conclude today, please turn. You're going to want to see what it says. And as you turn there, I want you to know, just as in the case of Paul, that a clear conscience doesn't mean that you're perfect or you're sinless, but it means that you embrace the truth, that in you is no deceit. You will sin, but when we sin, we're honest about our sins. And we know where to take our sins. We don't defend our sins and hide our sins. The Bible even tells us in the book of Psalms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. You recognize God's favor on you through Christ. This is why, brothers and sisters, we try to emphasize as much as we can the gospel in this church. Yes, we need practical teaching. We need teaching that will help us with our finances and our families and our marriage and our children and our jobs. But you don't come here just to hear a lecture about those things. Everything starts and flows from an understanding of the gospel. That God in Christ, by his grace, reconciles us to himself. That he takes sinners like you and me with defiled and dirty and numbed and seared consciences and he makes us new. That he covers our sins with the blood of his son Jesus Christ. And that because Christ is resurrected, he is making all things new. And there isn't a sinner in this world that is too sinful for God to redeem. There isn't a sin that God cannot forgive Once you realize that your standing before God has been taken care of because of Christ, then you can begin to stand before others with freedom. Not brashness, not arrogance, but with a freedom that understands the truth 
and where you are before God Almighty. God calls us to freedom. Christ sets us free. And he will continue to do so. And once we understand this, we could stand boldly before God and man, just like Paul stood before Felix and his accusers and their lawyer in Acts 24. So look with me in Hebrews 10, verses 15 to 23. And just as I read this, think about Paul standing before there with his conscience. Think about your conscience and think about how Christ not only cleanses us, but because he does that, he encourages us to boldly approach the throne of God. Hebrews 10, 15 to 23. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. That's our conscience. And write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is to his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen.